Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning. We're so glad that you're joining us here today. To all of you in Bowmanville or Port Perry or listening around the world, we all are also so glad you're with us today. Welcome to week two in this next major series that we're doing on spiritual gifts. Now, let me begin by answering this question again. Why are we doing this series? Why is this so critical, not only just for the normal rhythm of our church, but like we said two weeks ago, why is this critical to plan two? Why is this critical as we prepare to grow from three to five or six thousand? And the answer is simple. Spiritual gifts transcend culture. Spiritual gifts transcend race and gender and style. This power source is not based on who had historical power. It is never based on where money is. It is never based on personality. And it is the only ongoing guaranteed place of power to do ministry from. And as we found out last week, if Jesus himself used spiritual gifts and he himself is God, then we have no choice but to make them central in all we do. But before we get into every gift, what it looks like, what it feels like, how we identify it, the needed conversation we need to have is this. We need to turn to the role of character and see its effects on spiritual gifts and how they interplay. And for the best insight, if you have a Bible, I'd love you to turn to 1 Corinthians 12. You might remember, if you're part of our community, that within the last year and a half, we went through all of 1 Corinthians. And at this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul has already worked out so much in this church. He's been dealing with racism and idolatry and food issues and God and worship and, and demons and, and the values of the city versus the values of the new kingdom. But now Paul, at this moment in 1 Corinthians 12, moves to clarify spiritual power and its source, both good and bad. And why does this matter to them historically? Why does this matter to us? Here it is. Because spiritual power is the key for a church to be revived, for the church to accomplish its mission, for holiness, for love, and for being different than the world. But spiritual power can also become a place of deception, evil, and grieving the Holy Spirit. Again, we will see that Paul shows us that the goal of a pastor, the goal of a leadership team, the goal of key volunteers in a church community is not to dismiss experience or stop experience in private or in public, but it's to find out the source. Is it from God? Is it from Satan? Is it human? Is it medical? Is it delusional? Is it the food I ate last night? And by the way, if the experience is from God himself, no matter how uncomfortable we might be with the expression, how unusual it looks, Paul wants also to deal with the motives behind gifts and also the motive behind experiences. That is why, and many of us who grew up in church miss this, this is why after 1 Corinthians 12, Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13 on love, and the biblical definition of love is nothing but character. Usually 1 Corinthians 13 is always read at a marriage. But actually, the context of 1 Corinthians 13 is this. You must use your spiritual gifts right because they have to be grounded in love. Spiritual gifts, in other words, must access a place of ever-growing character, the deep, deep reservoir of what the Bible calls agape love or God-given love. So the gifts of the Spirit must be undergirded by the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is most defined by one word, love. So now we come to one of the most explicit outlines of what a genuine work of God looks like, feels like, and also must ebb from. 1 Corinthians 12.1 reads like this. 
Now about the gifts of the Spirit, oh brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. By the way, uninformed is actually the real word for many churches, not only in the West, but around the world. Many Christians are uninformed about the gifts. But also, this we begin to see is the biblical foundation for our goal to have a common script where we all in our church community have a common understanding of what the gifts are. We use the same names for the gifts we're referring to. We know how they look and how they don't look and how they culturally function within this church. And notice, Paul, when he's writing this, addresses the whole church. God gives spiritual gifts both to men and to women. Gender has nothing to do with the spiritual gifts. Now, when you get to offices in the church, when Paul's writing on that, the conversation changes. Paul continues, verse 2. Now, you know that when you were pagans, uh, somehow or another, you were influenced and you were led astray by mute idols. Now, the designation pagan, by the way, at one point meant non-Jewish, later became a term to mean your life pre-Jesus. But in this context also, it meant both of those things. But third of all, it also simply meant that people were involved in other religious systems which were classified as pagan. Almost every person who became a Christian in Corinth who was not from a Jewish background was involved in what they call secret cults or multiple religious experiences that had Greek or Roman origins. Now, it gets more interesting. He says, when you used to be part of that life, you were led astray. Now, that word led astray was used for prisoners when they were condemned and were about to go to prison for their whole life or be sentenced to capital punishment. Now, this is a powerful and a profoundly important idea. This is what Paul's writing. When we used to worship other gods, or, or, or when we exalt sex, money, and power over the true living God, then the true human condition is that we are in bondage and we are going to die. We are condemned. And by the way, if you're a Christian today, that is why we cherish and love being led by Jesus. We have no problem being a slave to Jesus because he actually allows us to live the life we're called to, and he leads us out of bondage, and he leads us out of death. Can you say amen to that this morning? That's the profound thing. Yet pre-Jesus, for this church community, their bondage was to idols that they used to worship. Now, we all know that idols are mute. They're made up of things that don't have life, like wood, stone, jewels, money. You can make education, sex, power, rights. You can make anything an idol. But never forget, that's not the whole story. Paul knew this and already taught the, the Corinthian community that behind idolatry, behind idols themselves, literally in the room, and behind the systems of worship or the worldviews, there are actually living beings, demonic beings, fallen angels that love to promote the system and love to revel in a worship that is not supposed to be theirs. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10, 19, this is what he wrote. Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or an idol is anything. No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God, and I do not want you to be a participant with demons. And you're like, okay, well, John, what's the point? Well, when Christians in Corinth used to be in other pagan worship services, all sorts of supernatural activity would take place. Now they're followers of Jesus, and they're now in church community, and the very similar supernatural activity is happening in the church. It looks very similar, if not exactly the same. 
So Paul's dealing with spiritual gifts. He's trying to teach the church and all of us to discern the difference between what spirit is actually at work. Now, and this is really important, much of the time, the manifestations of the supernatural will look not just similar, but almost exactly the same. So the question is, not does, not does what in front of me, what does it look like, but actually what is the source, and actually in the long term, what is the fruit? This is the example we've used at C4 for years. Think about a plug in a wall, and you plug it in, and you get electricity from the wall socket. The question for Paul is not should the experience happen, but actually what is the source of electricity to make the thing in front of us take place? That's why he says in verse 3, Therefore, I, I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are three really important things going on here in these two phrases, Jesus be cursed and Jesus be Lord. One, first, Paul wants them to understand that both evil and godly supernatural experience look so similar much of the time that the fruit or confession that comes out of it will define what's real. See, the pagans who had become followers of Jesus, they saw tongues all the time in their, in their pagan services. They had seen prophecy and spiritual experiences time and time again. So those things are not evidence that the Holy Spirit is in the room necessarily. That is why the spirit of Antichrist and the spirit of Christ get confused by so many people even today. The spirit of Antichrist, the one who is against Christ, still looks like Jesus, acts like Jesus, sounds like Jesus, will even use Jesus' name or Jesus' titles, but actually is there to deceive and not to bring you closer to Jesus. So what clarifies what's going on in an experience is the intelligible or the Christian content of others of the utterances later. Second of all, when someone says Jesus is Lord, here's what's being happened. This is what's being declared. Salvation is 100% from God. It's not from us. Any person on earth can say Jesus is Lord. People say Jesus is Lord and they don't mean it. People say Jesus is Lord and they say it as mockery. What, what Paul is actually saying is when a human being actually means Jesus is Lord, then it is a work of God himself. As one person said, the lordship of Jesus is not a human discovery. It is a discovery that it's made and can be made only when the Spirit of God is at work. So number one, we need to clarify what's in the room. Number two, when someone says Jesus is Lord, we begin to understand it's a God thing anyways, and there's only humility because God is so loving towards us. But third, Jesus is Lord is the earliest Christian confession. And when Christians 2,000 years ago said Jesus is Lord, they end up, ended up offending three communities overnight. When Christians originally said Jesus is Lord, number one, they were saying that Jesus is the only way and all other religions are inept or are false. Jesus is Lord. Second of all, it was a direct affront to the emperor because all the emperors were called Lord or the sons of God or those who bring peace. And so when Christians said Jesus is Lord, they were saying not only are all other religious systems not truthful enough or not full enough, they were also saying the emperor is not the one who can save 
save us. Nothing political will grip the heart of a Christian. Jesus is Lord. And third of all, because the Christian movement was birthed in the Jewish community, when you declare Jesus as Lord, it was profoundly offensive to the Jews because the Jews would declare Yahweh, God, only has right to that title. So when someone said Jesus is the Lord, you basically offend everyone all at once. Every faith, all political systems, and the Jewish faith. Why? Because it's a declaration of the uniqueness of Jesus. That is, by the way, why Paul says this in Romans 10.9. And if you've grown up in church, you know this, but you miss the power of this sometimes. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Oh, and believe in your heart, God raised Jesus from the dead. Then you'll be saved. It's not just mouthing the words, it's declaring that Judaism is fulfilled in Jesus, all other faith systems can't bring salvation, and politics does not save in the end. Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, by his resurrection and ascension, is the Lord of the universe. There is no other God, no other way for forgiveness, no other path to heaven or eternal life. Jesus is Lord. Now Paul moves from the past to the present And he now begins to start working out the gifts of God and what they look like personally and corporately. He says in verse 4, Now, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Holy Spirit distributes them. Notice, the Holy Spirit is the one that gives the gifts to the church. God gives the gifts. He chooses. We don't have a say in it at all. Again, like salvation, the giving of spiritual gifts, whether you get one or a few or five or eight, is a 100% God act and should again lead us to this deep place of humility because this is God's work and our gifts can never be used as a matter of pride or used against another. And here's the other thing we begin to discover that we really need to wrestle down. The Bible does not teach that you wake up every morning and say, good morning, Lord. I'm so glad we're here. Here's my empty tool belt. What gifts do I get today? There's no basket that you wake up and say, well, Lord, you know what I'm going to face today, so not just give me your character. I I need a little prophecy, a little tongues, and some administration today, okay? That's not how this works. The spiritual gift conversation isn't a buffet of experience. It's sovereignly assigned. Uh, There are different kinds of gifts. The same Holy Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service. Oh, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now, this is a really important group of verses. One, gifts, services, or workings are three words for the same thing. They have the same meaning. They are all manifestations or gifts of the Spirit. And notice, right in the middle of a conversation about gifts, we see God in his fullness. The Spirit is mentioned the Lord Jesus is mentioned, and God the Father is mentioned. In other words, the works of God are grounded within the Trinitarian relationship. And I hadn't caught this until I first preached through this series years ago. Did you notice where Jesus is? Jesus, right in this passage, is sitting between the Father and the Holy Spirit, which totally makes sense because Jesus always is the mediator and the revealer of all things. But not only that, notice the word that's paired with Jesus. The word that's paired with Jesus when it's about gifts is service. And again, this begins to give us the profound needed insight for using our spiritual gifts. Service is grounded in the idea of humility. And Jesus models something that is so countercultural, meekness. In other words, being humble or having power under control is never to be despised or resisted, but, but welcomed. 
Because Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, full of power, displays this agape love. In other words, the more we want to be like Jesus in the gifts, actually the more our character needs to be like him. Now, Paul keeps going. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. I mean, this is the best summary for the conversation on all spiritual gifts. We all as Christians get at least one gift, and the gifts are given for one thing and one thing alone. For the common good, to build up, to rebuke, to encourage, to challenge, to bring life to the community. They're not given for rivalry. They can't be used for jealousy. Uh, By the way, they cannot be hidden. They can't be suppressed because of fear. And by the way, gifts have nothing to do with our identity, pride, PR, or status. But the reverse is also true too. What a relief that we do not need to bribe God or spend our lives trying to be something God does not want us to be or God has not equipped us to be. So Paul says, okay, here's the beginning of one of the lists. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another, a message of knowledge by the means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And yet, still to another, the interpretation of tongues. Now, all of these are the work of the one and same Spirit. Oh, and He distributes them just as He determines. Now, that word distributes in Greek, if you're taking notes, highlight it, mark it, think about it, talk about it in Connect Group. In Greek, it is the word containing. And why does this matter? Because in the original language, there's a permanence to this word. In other words, what Paul is saying is you are going to be given gifts and you're going to contain them, not for a moment or a season, but a lifetime. Now, people always ask me this when we have this conversation. Well, well, okay, if I've got, let's say, the gift of mercy for a lifetime, will God ever give me a gift that's sort of not permanently assigned? Listen, my boss can do anything he wants, right? He's God. Of course he seasonally could give us a gift for a season, yes, but that is not the normative pattern. The normative pattern is when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes into you, he assigns one or a group of gifts, he distributes them, he determines them, you discover them, and they grow over a lifetime. Can he give you one situationally? Yes, but don't make that normative, because if you do, you'll stop functioning in the role you've been assigned for a lifetime. Now, from gifts and the source of gifts, now we get to Paul's best summary of what the church is and the church must be. And notice, the church is not expressed as democracy. The church is not expressed or defined as a dictatorship or some weird form of anarchy. It is made up of different people and different gifts and mutual submission. Again, like I shared last week, the image is not dependence or independence. The beautiful thing about church is called interdependence. Now, just as a human body, though the one has many parts, but all of its parts form one body, so it is with Jesus. So, though we are all different people, and we all have different backgrounds, and we even have different gifts, this does not affect our fundamental unity at all. And why? Because Jesus is our head, and the lifeblood that runs and connects all of us and the heartbeat of the church is the Holy Spirit. And this shows that to be with Jesus, by the way, you must be with other Christians. Church is community, and community is church, and Jesus' body is community. 
That's why we, when we talk about being a fully devoted follower here at C4, we say celebrate big together. We connect small together. We share the work together. We engage in mission together. There's this togetherness thing because you cannot just be by yourself. It's not just you and Jesus. It's us and Jesus. And then Paul writes these incredible words that have rippled down through history. For we are all baptized by one spirit, so to form one body, whether you're a Jew or non-Jew, you're slave or you're free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink, even so the body's not made up of one part, but many parts. Now this verse, I've shared this before, was like an earthquake, breaking the very foundation of both Greek, Roman, and Jewish worldview and bias. And it still threatens all of what we hold dear today. In other words, here's what he preaches. Every single ethnic and socioeconomic bracket of the ancient world is not swept away in the sense it doesn't matter, but its power is lost. See the power, see, see the power of this. All religious and gender and economic and racial barriers that government and education and war and writing have either tried to enforce or actually break down which have not been able to do in either direction. The Spirit of God does it in one moment through Jesus. See, when we join Jesus all together, there's a level foot at the cross. No matter where you're coming from, no matter if you're good or bad, no matter your skin color, your gender, all human distinctions are relegated to secondary because the Spirit of God does a unique thing. That's why the Bible says flesh brings flesh, but spirit births spirit. And think about it. The Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian today, living in you at this moment, he is the only thing that makes you different from everyone around you who's not a Christian. The only thing that distinguishes you from every human being, 7.5 billion people living on the earth, is the Spirit of God. He's the one who marks our beginning. He makes us a child of God. He binds us uniquely together. He convicts us of sin. He allows us to see Jesus. He empowers us to live like Jesus. He actually gives the gifts that Jesus had. He gives us the character, and he's our guarantee of resurrection. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is your everything. Don't be afraid of him. Run to him. He's your everything, whether you know it or not. But this also shows us something that is incredibly important that needs to be defined right at the beginning of the series. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a part two experience that happens after you become a Christian. You don't become a Christian and then pray really hard and fast lots and then you get zapped in this secondary way. Now maybe you grew up in a church that taught that, especially in a Pentecostal tradition. Here's what the scriptures teach. When you become a Christian, you are receiving the Spirit of Christ. You are baptized into the Spirit. Every single Christian on earth is baptized in the Spirit. Now, we are called to be filled in the Spirit over a lifetime. And filling is continuous. And lots of the experiences that some of you have had that you called baptism, weren't a baptism. Baptism is entrance. It was a filling later. They can be exciting or boring or in between. But meeting Jesus... And having Jesus move into your heart and getting the Holy Spirit is the same thing. Paul says that in, in the original language, he says that we all drink from the Spirit or we've all been watered by the Spirit. It comes from the idea of irrigation. You can actually translate this. We all have been saturated with one Spirit. Why does this matter? Well, it ties both of our baptisms well together. Water baptism represents and affirms spirit baptism. You're baptized in the Spirit first because if you have Jesus, you have his Spirit. 
And water baptism, like that wedding ring analogy, is publicly saying, I've already encountered him, my wedding ring is on, I'm off the market, I'm unavailable. Now then he gets into the nitty-gritty of church unity. He says, now if a foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not be for that reason, stop being part of the body. Oh, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. It would not be for that reason, uh, not for that reason, stop being part of the body. Now notice, the image here starts at the bottom of the body and works its way up, lower to higher. And here's what was happening 2,000 years ago in this church. Some of the humbler members in the church who did not have spectacular teaching gifts or didn't cast out demons or heal people or didn't have a lot of money or actually were slaves and didn't come from a place or position of power thought maybe they were second-class Christians or maybe not even really there at all and and felt like they were disqualified. And, And Paul says, actually, that's not from our side at all. You are not disqualified because you are humbler or you think you are lesser. And then he says, oh, if, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body was an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Please lean in. This is so important for some of you who are so discouraged and some of you who have actually been broken over this. Just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Uh, The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem, notice that word, that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment at all. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lack it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for one to another. The point is those with less flashy gifts are loved by God equally. Value has nothing to do with gift. Your identity has nothing to do. Your role, that God loves you. And those that supposedly have weaker versions of the gift, the body cannot work without them. And heaven literally is crying out from the pages of scripture, appearances deceive, all are necessary. I am the Lord, I'm building my church the way I've designed it. And for some of you that feel lesser, when you're around other Christians, and you're like, man, This is what God says to you. You're mine. You're not less. You're just where I want you to be. Don't live in the shadow of others. Don't give in to jealousy. Don't give in to anger. Don't allow others, their looks or their comments, to even form your core identity. Listen to what God says. I have formed you. I love you even before the gifts. I'm pleased with your service. And my reward is coming. And the reward that you will give for being faithful with your small thing that you consider small, will be more satisfying than any PR moment you could have on earth. And actually, you who feel lesser, you are given greater honor among us because God has declared it so. And we who have stronger expressions of gifts or more spectacular gifts, here's basically what God says. You don't need any help. You've already got problems, pride, etc. Don't look down on people. Don't think you're more important. And remember, God says, I give and I take away. I bring up and I bring down. And what's the point? If one part suffers, 
every part suffers. If one part is honored, then every part rejoices with it. Every single one of us within the sound of my voice has a body. You have a body. And if you don't believe that we all suffer, just imagine, raise your hand if you've ever had a bad toothache before. Just raise your hand. Right. Did your whole body feel it? Yes or no? Of course it did. Though it was here, all of you was not feeling great. And that is Paul's point. When we do this right, when someone is honored, we all are excited. When someone is hurting, we're all affected. He says, you are the body of Christ. What a statement. You are the body of Jesus. Each one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church first apostles, prophets, teachers, miracle workers, then gifts of healing, helps, guidance, and different kinds of tongues. And you go, hold on a second. Doesn't that actually seem to contradict what Paul just wrote? Now some are more important? No, no, don't misunderstand him. This is about influence and responsibility or even authority but this has nothing to do with value or importance. So he says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have the gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? He's basically saying, no. And then he says these words, now eagerly desire the greater gifts, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. And you're like, hold on a second. Now I'm supposed to seek the gifts, but John, I just read in the passage where God himself gives me the gifts, and it's a sovereign deal, and he assigns what I get, and now he's asking me to seek. What in the world is going on? Okay, well, here's how we historically work this out. Here's how we'll continue to work this out. One, one, sure, you can ask God for any gift you want, and you can do it out of sincerity, but just don't demand them. Say to God, I would really like to speak in tongues, or I would really like administration, but just get ready for him to say something to you. No. But if he says yes, bonus. Second of all, and you need to ask this even more importantly, why does he say the greater gifts in the most excellent way? Because he's pointing to something. Because the very next verse is 1 Corinthians 13. And Paul's point is this. Actually, the more excellent way and the greater gifts isn't prophecy or tongues necessarily or administration or preaching. It's love. The greater gift is love. The more excellent way is love. If you really, really want to see God show up in your marriage, in your friendships, in your life, ask for love first and give second. Because guess what? Love is a thing that ripples into eternity. Okay, what do we learn? And what are we going to do next? Because remember, this is like Lego. We're slowly building a house over these, all these weeks. Number one, every one of us needs to surrender all of our gifts and experiences to God formally to see what side they're from. You're like, what? Any spiritual gifts or experiences you had before you became a Christian aren't from the Holy Spirit necessarily. And you need to go to him literally today and say, when I was three, when I was five, when I was eight, when I was 12, when I was 40, before I became a Christian, I had this ability or gift. See, all supernatural experiences pre-Jesus need to be given over to him to see if what side they're from. Let me give you an example. So I was teaching at a seminary course I teach at Tyndale on spiritual conflict. And a young man in the middle of the course, preparing me to be a pastor, I was speaking on a different subject. And he says to me, and I said these words. And he said to me, hold on a second. He said, uh, John, can I clarify something? I said, yes, this was in private. He said, um, he says, I go to a free Methodist church. I'm like, go, go team, go Methodist, great. And he said, um, he said um, are you telling me that all the experiences I've had pre-Jesus might actually be from the devil? I'm like, yes, absolutely. Oh, he says, well, he says, well, I, I'm a psychic. I said, tell me what you mean by that. 
He says, well, I always know when someone's going to die. I always can tell the future. So then I said to him, okay, and remember, where are we doing this? In a seminary class, preparing to become a pastor, and he serves already in his church, in a very non-charismatic environment, actually. And I say to him, okay, tell me more. I said, by the way, anyone else in your family? He says, yeah, well, my, my mom does this and my grandma does this. All my insides are going sideways at this moment. And I said to him, okay, so here's what you need to do. Tonight, I want you to go before the true living Jesus, because there are many Jesuses in the world. Go to Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God the Father, and say to him, if this gift is not from the Holy Spirit, take it away from me. He said, really? I said, yes, because how do you have this from the Spirit when you got the Spirit? You became a Christian later in life, so tell me how the Holy Spirit gave you gifts when he wasn't in you. So he went home. And he prayed. He came back the next day, and I was in Dr. John land, and there was 40 students, and I wasn't really thinking. And he walked right up to me, and he said to me, I'm blind. And I was like, what? I was tired. I had my coffee. I'm like, and I literally was like, what? Are you okay? I, I, I had forgotten. And he said, no, I'm blind. I said, what do you mean? He says, it's gone. I can't see anything. I can't sense. I'm terrified because I've relied on this my whole life. I said, ah, praise the Lord. Now we can get going. I said, in Jesus' name, anything that's demonic, leave. Now, Holy Spirit, give them the real gifts. Now, he was using that gift in his church, calling it prophecy, and it wasn't. So we need to, without fear, go before the Lord and say, anything that happened to me pre-Jesus, weird or sort of strange, just, Lord, take it away if it's not from you. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing we learned in this series, spiritual gifts. We're doing this series to build a common script. So the goal is that every single one of us can start going, hmm, I wonder if that's me. I wonder if that's what it feels like and looks like. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. Here's the third thing, always ask in community. I've been struck over the last 20 years when we have spiritual gift conversations, how many people discover their spiritual gifts through other people. In other words, people around you will probably see the spiritual gifts in you before you see them yourself. You're like, I don't have any spiritual gifts. Yes, you do. And when you start talking about this, especially in a connect group context, God is going to begin to speak through other people, and you're going to go, oh my goodness, I just never thought, I just always did that. Oh, it's a gift. So you need to be in community. Here's another thing to help you on our journey together. It's what we call the role of dots. Here's one way I've started to use to help us differentiate spiritual gifts from spiritual practices through this rule of dots. Uh, every one of us, if you're a Christian, has probably walked into an environment like a bookstore or, or, or a bar or, or a home and you've felt spiritually uncomfortable. You've just been like, mm, 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 I don't know why I got to get out of here. Now, does that mean, oh, I've got the gift of discernment? Radars are, burr, burr. no. We all have the Holy Spirit, and we all have the Bible, and we all are called to discern. And, and every once in a while, we just know, nah, that's not right. We also all share the gospel with people. Does that mean we all have the gift of evangelism? We, I mean, we all have faith, right? We, we, does that mean we all have the gift of faith? We, we all give, right? Well, no, here's the rule. When, it, when an experience happens to you, it's a dot. Interesting. We should pay attention to it. If the experience is repeated again, it's two dots. It's worth evaluating. But if the experience happens again and again and again and again, it might become a place where it starts to indicate you might have a spiritual gift. And as a Christian, watch for those moments and ask yourself the question, why does this always happen to me? And one of the things we've got to undo in our church is lots of people go, oh, this happens to me and this happens to every Christian. But you're not in community to talk about it. So, of course, like when you're talking to a person who has the gift of intercession, right, and you're in conversation in connect group, and they're like, yeah, yeah, like you pray two hours a day every day, right? And you're like, mm, no, what are you talking about? 
And the person suddenly goes, well, isn't that normal? Yes, but no. So watch for the rule of dots. What is always happening? Where are you sort of ebbing towards all the time? And one phrase we use a lot now to bring clarity is, everything that's not a spiritual gift is a discipline. We all have to give. We all have to have faith. We all have to evangelize. But there's an ease to it and a power behind it if it's a gift. Here's another thing that's really helped me that some of you are going to smile at. It's going to cause lots of conversation by tonight. Where you're angry in church is usually where you're gifted. Where you're angry, I won't use another word, where you're angry at church is usually where you're gifted. Every administrator is like, oh, build a better plan all the time. Build a better, teachers are like, can someone just read Calvin a little bit more and teach something, right? All the tongues people are like, can we just not interpret? See, where you tend to always go, oh, why isn't the church, why isn't my connect group doing, oh, you're usually gifted in that direction. Think about it. And gift tension, which we'll talk about at the end of the series, is critical. So rule of dots, experiences, Gift tension. And here's another thing. Lots of you know your gifts already. Lots of you actually know what you've been equipped by the Holy Spirit to do. So, so as we get going in the series, let me give you a few things to work through also if you do know them. Have you stopped using them? It's so interesting for us who've been on the journey for a while that some people who know their gifts absolutely stop using them because of fear or fatigue. There's lots of reasons. Well, let me just say this to you. It's time to go back to how God has equipped you and see his kingdom come in greater power again. In other words, it's time to serve. It's time to share in the work. And never forget, it's the most powerful, guaranteed place to do it in. So if you know your gifts and you've stopped using it, you need to have a conversation with God and community. Also, let me help you reflect on the part your own character plays in thinking about your role in the body of Christ. Uh, Do you think, honestly think, that maybe because of your gifts, or, or maybe your age, or race, or gender, or your educational status, or your experience, that you're better than any other Christian or church. The reverse is also true, that we've got to work out. See, this is motive. Uh, here, here's what God would ask us to do. Repent. Your attitude, by the way, is a violation of God's grace, mercy, and sovereignty. A real move of God in a life in a church is happening when real motives are brought up to be dealt with. In other words, would you be willing for God to really set you free from arrogance so you can have joy and be joy for others? Uh, The reverse is true. Are you a person who thinks that you are less in the body of Jesus? Are you genuinely full of anger or envy or jealousy or resentment towards God or, or others in the church that either have stronger versions of the gift you've been given or different ones that you really want and God just won't give it to you? Has this led you to a place of self-hatred and or apathy because you want something God has not created you to be, so you've decided to have no joy? Maybe you've allowed others to form you or not let God have the final say over who you are. So God says, well, just come to me, have a conversation with me, and, and let me genuinely show you how indispensable you are and how much joy is leaking out of you, and if you would stop looking sideways and look up, how you will change. Are you willing to pray now or later? Yes, I I want to know my gifts. Maybe that's you. And I'm eager, but I acknowledge that you'll have to give them, so I'm going to ask for the gifts, but I'm going to be okay with what you choose to give me. I I can tell you this. God will answer a prayer like that. If you don't know your gifts... 
and you come to him and say, I don't know, but I'll take anything you've got for me, he'll answer that. Here's another thing. Have you put God in a box? Because of fear. Lots of people, even at C4, are afraid of the Holy Spirit still. Because you're like, well, my theology says God could never do that. Or I don't think God wants to do that. Or I don't want to be part of a church where all that stuff happens. Or I'm not sure if I want to be that person. John can be the weird person, but not me. No, no. Repent. Never say to God, you may not. It never goes well. God will trample our sensibilities for his own glory. And last and most important. And it doesn't matter whether you know your gifts, you're discovering your gifts, you're in between. The greatest gift and the greatest request we should be asking God for is humility and love. Because actually, love will allow us to handle electricity right. Remember I talked about this when Moses, the great man of God, the one that knew God as a friend, was given the rod, right? And he split the Red Sea with his brother Aaron and all this. And he did these profound things with a gift of God. But then if you read it, it says, in his anger he sinned with the gift. And so one of the things that we continually talk about here is that character is always more important than spiritual gifts because character allows you to use gifts right. Character grows holiness in the church. And here's the most important thing. Character will legitimize you to others when you use your gifts. So actually, here's the greatest prayer for every connect group and every one of us. Love is patient, and love is kind. Love does not envy, love does not boast, love is not proud, love does not dishonor others, and love isn't self-seeking, it's not even easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. That's the most excellent way. That's the greatest gift. And so would you stand uh, wherever you might be today, and could we ask God, as we go through this journey together, to produce in us the more important thing? And by the way, God will always answer the prayer about love. You can name and claim this one every single time. So would you just take a moment, and would you, if you're willing, by the way, if you could take your hands and open them, just as a sign of being open to the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And let's pray. Number one, thank you, Lord, that you saved us out of darkness and brought us into light. Thank you that we were in bondage and death and you set us free. Thank you. Thank you that you've equipped the church. You've given us the Holy Spirit. And not only just given us the Holy Spirit, thank you the gifts you've given us. Help every person in this church to know their one or many spiritual gifts clearly, authentically. But here's our real prayer. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit into our families, into our friendships, into our connect groups, into the church, and produce in us love, a God-given, God-growing, God-honoring, unnatural agape love in our church. It will only happen through the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. As humans, we ask for the gift of love now, so as we step out in great power, we will not turn on each other, we will not become prideful, we will not become self-reliant. Lord, continue your profound work among us. In the name of Jesus, who gives the Spirit, who gives us gifts. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.